following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. So, thanks Scott last Sunday for covering um, and giving us an excellent presentation on faith from Hebrews 11. One of the things I love about um, not just the times I'm gone, but other times when there's people here in our pulpit, is that I have such great confidence that when someone is standing up here talking to you, they're giving you the Word of God, and they've done due diligence, and they're doing their best to rightly handle the Word of truth. So I'm, I'm just appreciative of that being part of what's available here in our church. I'm going to read a couple verses, starting back in Hebrews 11 and getting to Hebrews 12. Uh, And then we're going to talk about that just a little bit. So Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32. So last week, Scott was talking about a lot of the examples in Hebrews 11 of people to whom God had given faith. This is the way that section ends. I could speak more of faith. I could talk until time itself ran out. If I continued, I could speak of the examples of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and all the prophets. I could give accounts of people alive with faith who conquered kingdoms, brought justice, obtained promises, and closed the mouths of hungry lions. I could tell you how people of faith doused raging fires, escaped the edge of the sword, made the weak strong, and stoking great valor among the champions of God, sent opposing armies into panicked flight. I could speak of faith, bringing women, their loved ones, back from the dead, and how the faithful accepted torture instead of earthly deliverance because they believed they would obtain a better life in the resurrection. Others suffered mockery and whippings. They were placed in chains and in prisons. The faithful were stoned, sawn in two, killed by the sword, clothed only in sheepskins and goatskins. They were penniless, afflicted, and tormented. The world was not worthy of these saints. They wandered across deserts, crossed mountains, and lived in the caves, cracks, and crevices of the earth. These, though commended by God for their great faith, did not receive what was promised. That promise has awaited us, who receive the better thing that God has provided in these last days, that is, the new covenant through Jesus, so that with us our forebearers might finally see the promise completed. And that takes us into chapter 12, which begins with, Therefore... So that's your connecting word. Everything in Hebrews 11 and maybe even for a ways before that, the author is now making a point. Because of these things, since we are surrounded by an enormous cloud of all those who have gone before, let us drop every extra weight, every sin that clings to us and slackens our pace and let us run with endurance the long race set before us. Now stay focused on Jesus, who designed and perfected our faith. He endured the cross and ignored the shame of that death because he focused on the joy that was set before him. And now he is seated beside God on the throne, a place of honor. So originally this Sunday, I was going to do chapter 12. If you're familiar with Hebrews, that was a foolish idea to try to do chapter 12. So then I thought, I'll do part of chapter 12. And by the time I was done studying, I'm like, I'll do chapters 12, verse 1 and 2. We'll do more than two verses next Sunday. At least that's my current plan. But as I started diving into this, I think I've said before that Hebrews is just really rich. It's thick theologically. And it can be a little daunting at times. 
there's a preparation that I do. I go to a website called Precept Austin. By the way, part of what Scott talked about last Sunday was the importance of not proof texting, of putting scripture in context if we're going to study it. If you pick up my notes, and in a minute, I'm going to give you opportunity to get some notes because of how we're going to do the format today. But there's a website I like called Precept Austin. One of the things I often do for sermon prep is I'll go through and I'll just I'll read everything people are saying. And they give links to sermons and all kinds of stuff I just don't have time for. But they just basically, they'll unpack words, they'll unpack phrases, they unpack sections. They pull from all kinds of people. So in this case, because I was traveling and I needed notes, I went into Precept Austin and I just copy and pasted their section on Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. I thought, I'll read it when I don't have access to internet. And that was 60 pages of notes from verses 1 and 2. I'm like, this will just be one sermon. right? Uh, so I recommend Precept Often. If you want to study Scripture, they are a great website to get you started. And a lot of my notes from today come from them. Not all of them, but many of them do. And you'll see that as we continue. So what I'm going to do today is I, I took all of these commentaries and explanations and different things that great Christians throughout history, speaking of clouds of witnesses, have had to say about this section. And what I'm giving you this morning is what I'm calling a letter to the CLG ruse. So this is a play on letter to Hebrews. Um, It's kind of funny, I think. Work with me here. I didn't know what to call the sermon. So we're going to kind of go through a letter together. And what this letter is, is it's taking these two verses And this is your opportunity, by the way, if you don't have notes, I would love for you to have notes in your hands this morning, or this is going to be a long sermon. So if you didn't pick something up and you would like, you don't have to have it, I'm going to put it up on the screen as well, but I think it would be helpful. If you'd like some notes, raise your hand, and there's people who will give you some notes. In fact, while they're doing that, I'm going to get a chair. One of the things I noticed as I was reading up on this is that along with, uh, along with a lot of the explanation of the scripture, there was a lot of ways in which Christians have looked at what's presented here and said, oh, let's walk into this a little bit more. Let's take some time to think about some of the things that are said here. So one reason I'm doing it this way is that I would like you to have these notes because I think they would be worthwhile for you to read and study on your own. Keep in mind, as you'll see clearly as you get a copy of this, I am standing on the shoulders of giants here. I'm not asking you to spend time in this because Anthony has come up with these really clever things. Anthony is building on what Christians have written uh, as the Holy Spirit has helped them to understand and, and has, in his own way, inspired them as they've thought about these writings. So this isn't to uh, to ask you to spend more time thinking about things the way I think about them. I'm asking you to spend more time thinking about the ways in which the church has understood these things. So your handout should simply begin, letter to the CLG ruse. This is Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, with commentary. And uh, I'm just going to read through it. One more thing before we start. I actually thought this week, should I write this like it's a letter to my boys? 
Like, boys, this is what I want you to understand that the Bible has to say. Uh, I, I was more conscious of that this week because today is the th- third anniversary of my heart attack. And it's a weird anniversary. Like, normally you're like, woo! Um, but I, I've, I've been a little more conscious this week about I, I want to pass stuff on to my boys because um, I don't know what, what my time is. But then I thought, that's actually how I prep most of my sermons, really, is I, I want to pass this on. Like, how do I wish I'd have had this explained to me when I was younger? And in some ways, I think most of what I prep is in some ways a letter, but it's not just to my boys, just generally that's what it is. Um, so, so, yeah, here we go. Do you remember how Philo... A beloved Jewish philosopher wrote 250 years ago. Uh, Okay, sorry, one more thing. I'm pulling from language from 2,000 years ago and also trying to add some language from today. So there might be these weird time jumps of 2,000 years. I couldn't figure out how to get around that, so just be prepared for it. Do you remember how Philo, a beloved Jewish philosopher, wrote 250 years ago that Abraham took good runners as an example and finished life without stumbling and was rewarded crowns and prizes? Well, I want to run with this analogy. Run with it. Come on. As I talk about life in the kingdom of God, but let's apply it to the running that you know and have observed, the Olympic Games. First, in order for athletes to enter, they have to be citizens, right? The race I'm talking to you about now is not a race towards salvation or citizenship in heaven. You are citizens of heaven already. You're qualified to run in the discipleship race, and in fact, you're running now, ready or not. Getting ready to run the race is like standing in the starting block at the Olympic Games. The rising amphitheater that is full of spectators for the Olympians is for us full of righteous runners from our history who bear witness and inspire us. What God did through Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, Moses, and Rahab reminds us of what he's able to do in and through us today. The stories of their faithful obedience are a testimony to the faith God gave them and now gives us. If their obedience could be counted as righteousness for them... Our obedience can be counted for our righteousness as well. All of them were people just like us, through whom God demonstrated his power and his faithfulness. You don't need to be a hero to run. You only need the faith and the endurance that God gives to all of his children. So let's drop every extra weight like all wise runners do when they get ready to run. The Olympians in Greece ran practically naked in an attempt to get rid of anything that would slow them down. Today, Olympic athletes wear the lightest shoes. Swimmers wear the slickest body suits. Bikers get the most aerodynamic helmets and bikes. They cut down to the smallest percentage of body fat. Every little thing matters. We cannot win if we are weighted. The pace will have to be very swift, and we cannot get to it or keep it up if we have weights to carry. Unloaded, we shall find the race taxing all our powers. Weighted? We shall be doomed to failure. Oh, to lay aside all burdensome care, fretfulness, ambition, anger, greed, and selfish desire. These were never worth the labor they have cost us. But now that we have become runners, we must have done with them. Down they must go. We would diminish even our own bulk that we may fly along the course. 
So as you'll notice, I'm doing direct quotes from some people as part of what I read. What then are the weights that we should remove so that we might win the race? Well, anything and everything that hinders our spiritual progress, even good things. So strip off and cast away even harmless things if they hinder your progress. Divert your attention, sap your energy, or dampen your enthusiasm to the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. All that does not help us hinders us. You're in a race which calls for the best that is in you. What is the weight which is slowing you down? Ask yourself in everything you do, does this help or hinder my spiritual life? Is it in the way of greater faith and greater love and greater purity and greater courage and greater humility and greater patience and greater self-control? Does it help me run? Is it in the way? Don't ask about your music, your movies, your parties, your habits, what's wrong with it. Ask, does it help me run the race? Does it help me run for Jesus? If you aren't sure how to ask this question, try this, what I'll call the weight test. First is the world test. Will this thing encourage me toward loving Jesus or the world more? The quality test, is it good for me physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, and spiritually? The temple test, can I do it in good conscience when I remember that I am one of the living stones that builds the church, the temple of God? The glory test, will it glorify or shame the reputation of God? The blessing test, can I honestly ask God's blessing on this? The avoidance test, well, I want to hide, minimize, or lie about this thing when others find out. The reputation test, will it damage my testimony for the Lord? The consideration test, am I being considerate of others and the effect this might have on them? The companion test, would I invite Christian friends to go with me and participate with me? Or would my non-Christian friends be confused? Um, pause the reading of the letter. This is something for us to consider. Just, this is my encouragement. Take some time this week, especially, and we're going to get to what the sins look like too. But if you're like, you know, there are some things that I do hide, minimize, or lie about that because I don't want other people to find out about them. Or, you know what, I think this probably does shame God's reputation, or this thing doesn't really encourage me to love God more, and I know it. Can I ask you not to avoid that feeling? If there's some unsettledness in you as you've read this list, please walk into that unsettledness. Take some time this week to pray about it, to get with a friend, maybe go this through this together and say, sister or brother, uh, I need to be honest with you. Some things came into my mind as as I think about this and as I pray about this. My conscience is working on me. The Holy Spirit is nudging me. There's some things that are weighting me down. I just want to encourage you, don't walk away from that. Walk into that this week with Christ and with others. Play. Some of these weights can be good things that we misuse. However, some we know to be sinful in and of themselves. And we must cast off every sin that clings to us, surrounds us, slackens our pace, and trips us up. 
We're all prone toward the well-circumstanced sin, that which has everything in its favor, time and place and opportunity, a sin in which all these things frequently occur, and consequently the transgression is frequently committed. This is the sin over which we hate to be reproved. The sin which has the most power to control our thoughts, our money, our energy, our time, and our actions. The sin which we most easily or defiantly justify. The sin which we promise to give up when we're desperate for God's help. The sin which we can't see, but everyone else around us does. The sin that makes us angry that we're even talking about it. Pause. This is another one to consider. Lord, What are these things that whenever someone brings them up, I get immediately a little angry, a little tense, this desire to defend and justify because I know it's not right, but I don't want to give it up. I I don't want to make that change. And so we avoid the people who will hold us accountable. We avoid the scriptures that highlight it. We... If there's something coming to mind in this moment or as you look at this this week, don't walk away from it. Walk into it. Having cast our weights and our sins away, let us run with endurance the long race set before us. God sets the course. If you're running a marathon, you can't make up your own course. If you stray from the course, you'll be disqualified. The race is set before us just as Jesus had the joy set before him. God is the sovereign one who sets the course for each of us just as he set the course of the cross for Jesus. To finish the Christian marathon, it's important to keep in mind at all times that the sovereign God sets the course. You may not like parts of the course. You may be prone to grumble, why did the course have to go over this hill or through this swamp? And the answer is because the sovereign God planned it that way. You won't be able to run by faith unless you submit your will to his will. This race is that life of faith and obedience, the pursuit of personal holiness to which the Christian is called by God. The Christian race begins at the new birth, and it ends not until we are summoned to leave this world. In addition, God has prepared a lane for each of his children to run in on the way to this ultimate finish line. All of us have a lane that is for us and not for others as we run. God has a work for everyone that no one else can do quite as well. Can I just say that again? God has a race for everyone that no one else will do quite as well. And that's a language from the biblical illustrator. There is a lane for you that no one else can do quite as well. If you feel like you have nothing to offer, that you don't know why you're here, that you can't conceive of why the kingdom of God needs you, there is a lane that God intends for you to fill that no one else can fill. You matter in the kingdom of God. A race has been set before me, and it's my duty to find out what that race is and run it and not waste life and regrets that I cannot run a different one or waste life's energies in unsuccessful attempts to do so. 
I have my family of origin, my extroverted or introverted personality, my school, my community, my friends, my history of beauty or pain, my spouse, my children, my job, my talents, my issues I'm passionate about in ways others are not, my resources, my health, my opportunities. You get the idea. If I were to look around and try to run in someone else's lane because it looks cooler or more important or easier, I would be a fool at best and a rebel against God's plan at worst. We must all run with patience, the race toward Christ, with Christ, but we all run in a lane. So how do we know what the lane of the race is for us? There's a lot of ways to think about it, so let's try this as a starting point. For what has your past prepared you? God is famously good at working all things into something good for those who are called according to his purposes for them and for turning what Satan meant for evil into good. So for what has your past prepared you? In what circumstances have you been placed? What are your gravity issues? That is, limitations that cannot be changed by your power. But what are your freedom issues? Things that you can change. Know the difference. What kind of person are you? Do you like math or music? Big picture or detail? People or projects? Do you like to work with your hands or with your head? Are you extroverted or introverted? Can you make money? Do you make plants grow? Do you help people flourish? Do you turn houses into home? What kind of person are you? What is a meaningful thing that you love to do? Not just what do you do for fun that you like. What does the world or your family or the church need that you can do and that you love to do? And finally, what do you and others believe you do well? Maybe get an opinion other than yours. Sometimes we mistake our lane for someone else's. Find out how other people see you run. Pause. Uh, there's a reason I, I gave a bunch of handouts this morning because now that's the third list of things to think about. I know I've been part of many conversations in the course of my life. Sometimes it was me speaking. Sometimes I was talking with others where there's a genuine frustration. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know what God's called me to. I don't know why I'm here This is just meant to help you start thinking purposefully about this. How has your past prepared you? Look at the good and the bad. I'm convinced that God prepares his children for meaningful ministry out of the things that have formed them, both the things that have left scars and the things that have been beautiful and brought healing. The the circumstances you've been given, I don't mean that it's a fatalistic thing. I simply mean... That you're in a lane. There are some things about it you can't change. There are some things that you can. So within the limitations of the things we can't change about where we are, what is the freedom we have to meaningfully engage? What kind of person are you? I spent a lot of years wanting to be something very different than I am. When I was in high school, I, I was a babbler at times. I just couldn't stop talking. As you might imagine, it got me in trouble. There was a guy in my school that I just looked up to like crazy because he hardly ever talked. Like I thought, that is amazing. He goes from situ- to situation after situation quietly. 
How do people do that? Like, he's perfectly content, calm, and very self-assured. It's like, I want to be that guy. But I was not made to be that guy. I was made to be a talker. He was made to be quiet. If he tried to be like me, that is not how God intended to use him. If I tried to be like him, that is not how God intended to use me. I, because I preach. I have preachers that I just admire like you would not believe. And I, I spent far too much time over the years trying to preach like them. That's a terrible idea. God made me to preach like me. That's one. Thank you. <laughs> now, I listen and I learn because I want to grow and I, I want to refine and I, I want to do what I do with excellence. And there's a lot of models around me that can help me. But, but I can't be Matt Chandler. I can't be Timothy Keller. And for me to try to be them um, insults God's plan for my life. It's easy for me to just look at people in this church body and to admire your personalities and your vigor and your talent and all these things. And I I see other pastors who the amount of energy they have just makes me tired when I talk with them. And I'm like, the dangers that I go, why can't I be them? Because God did not make me to be them. God made me to be me. Who did God make you to be? There's a very genuine, holy sense in which the phrase, be yourself, is important in Christianity. That's not a a sentence of complacency. That's That's reminding us God made us to be something. He put us in a lane. Whatever you put your hand to, do it with all your might. Where has God led you? Where has he placed you? What has he given you? Do that. This this is the idea. Play. Let's be honest. This is asking a lot. If every weight of care must be laid aside and every rag of sin, who is sufficient for these things? How can we poor, limping mortals run in such a race as this? Even the starting is beyond us. How much more must perseverance in it outreach in it? How much more? Let me try that again. How can we poor, limping mortals run in such a race as this? Even the starting point is beyond us. How much more must perseverance in it outreach our strength? See, my brethren, how we are driven to free grace how we're driven to the power of the Holy Spirit. The race which is set before us most clearly reveals our helplessness and our hopelessness apart from divine grace. The race of holiness and patience, while it demands our vigor, displays our weakness, we are compelled, even before we take a step in the running, to bow the knee and cry unto the strong for strength. We dare not retreat from the contest, But how can we begin a struggle for which we are so unfitted? Who will help us? To whom shall we look? That is why we must stay focused on Jesus, who designed and perfected our faith. He's like the judge in the games, whose business it was to admit the contenders and to give the prize to the conqueror. He is the finisher by awarding the prize to those of us that are faithful unto death. 
He's the author or the judge under whom and by whose permission and direction, according to the rules of the heavenly race, we are permitted to enter the lists and to commence the race. And he's the finisher by awarding and giving the prize, which consummates the combatants at the end of the race. He endured the cross and ignored the shame of that kind of death because he focused on the joy that was set before him. That is, the joy of fulfilling the will of his Father, which was, for him, the work of reconciliation accomplished on the cross. Now he's seated beside God on the throne, a powerful image for how he has taken his place of honor. A marathoner named John Aquari finished last at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. More than an hour after everyone else was done, he hobbled in with a bloodied and bandaged leg. When asked why he didn't drop out, he said, my country did not send me to Mexico City to start the race. They sent me here to finish. Jesus did not give us faith simply to start. We're not placed in a kingdom and sent to a lost world for us to simply sit or stand. We have been called to run, and we have been equipped to finish. This is an impossible task on our own, but we're not alone. In the Christian life, we have a presence, the presence of Jesus. He is at once the goal of our journey and the companion on our way. At once the one whom we go to meet and the one with whom we travel. The wonder of the Christian life is that we press on surrounded by the saints, oblivious to everything but the glory of the goal, and forever in the company of him who has already made the journey and reached the goal and who waits to welcome us when we reach the end. Boy, I love that image. I don't know about you, but I find that running the Christian life is at times very hard, very trying, and it's exhausting. And other times it's beautiful and just fantastic and meaningful. But one thing I know is that there is a finish line. And that at that finish line awaits joy everlasting and full of glory. And that as God calls his children to run this race, he equips those who he calls. God's not going to call you to do something he won't help you do. He has called us to run. He is, as Scott talked about last week, he gives us the faith. He gives us the endurance. He gives us his word, his Holy Spirit, his people. There's a cloud of witnesses. These these people who have shown by the testimony of their lives, the race can be run and it can be finished. And that's something I just want us to settle into for a week before we go further in, in Hebrews 12. This imagery of running the race and taking time to think about, are there weights in my life that are holding me back from experiencing the joy of running an unweighted race? Are there sins in my life that are holding me back from experiencing the joy of running a race without that burden weighing me down? So there's, there's tools for you this morning. And once again, I encourage you, pray about it, think about it, walk into it with God and walk into it with a friend. It's a very important part. If the Holy Spirit is working you on something this morning about something that's, that's weighing you down and holding you back in this race, please don't do it alone. 
If you're in a small group, it's a good time to talk about it in the next couple weeks. If you're not, you can make your own small group. Take somebody out for coffee. Two's a group. We want to run this race for the glory of God and experiencing the joy that is inherent in it as much as we can on this side of heaven. Uh, we're going to close with prayer. Uh, what I will do is, um, after the business meeting, because Pete's going to come up right away, after the business meeting, he'll instruct the setup for this morning for um, the potluck. After that happens, I'm just going to go over in the prayer room, because it's going to be busy and noisy in here. And if any of you, if there's something this morning about running the race that you just want someone to pray with you about right away, just that power of looking another person in the eye and saying, I have this weight, I have this sin, I have this burden, I want to experience the joy of running the race now, I want to run it well. If God is speaking to you about that, come come find somebody and right away establish some accountability, some motivation. I think God intends his people to do that. Lord, I am grateful that you're a God who by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus makes possible for us to be runners in this race of discipleship. I'm grateful then that you don't just back off and leave us alone, but that you run with us even as we run toward you. That as you call us, you equip us. Lord, I'm grateful that while we're all in the same race, that you have put us each in our own unique lane. Uh, such that as we run, we bring something that no one else can bring to your kingdom and to the world. Lord, give us insight and wisdom on that. Help us to see the beauty of what you have put into us and what you have called us into. May we not be discouraged and lose heart. May we endure for the joy that is set before us and with the one who brings us that joy. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.